Um, I'd like to welcome you to, we're in week seven now, uh, of our series called Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at the life of King David. And um, I remember on the front end of this series, I, I told you why we landed on the title Peaks and Valleys. And, and the reason for that is because if you know anything about David, uh, you know that he was, among other things, he was known for being a man of extremes. Um, and I, what I think is so neat about David is how much of his life is preserved for us in Scripture, because it's not just, you know, the narrative stories of what he did and didn't do through his life, but even his relationship with God is chronicled for us through the book of Psalms. You can literally get a, you know, a personal look into what his time with God was like um, when you read, you know, the Psalms that he wrote, his prayers, how he related to God. And if you read any of those Psalms, you'll see that David was a man who went from just the height of joy to the depth of, uh, of, of sorrow over and over again, sometimes even within the same prayer. And it's, it's really for that reason that David has always been such a, personally, uh, such an encouragement for me. Because what David's life has shown me over and over again is that even if, you, even if you're considered a man after God's own heart, even if you uh, have an anointing, uh, you know, on your life, you know, by God, even if God's hand so obviously, evidently rests on you, you can still be a person that has really high highs and really low lows. You can be a person that moves from the peak to the valley. Uh, but more than just being an encouragement for us, David's life is a resource for us. Because as we take the time to look at the peaks and the valleys in his own life, what we're actually looking at is a, basically a roadmap for navigating the peaks and the valleys in our lives. And uh, so what we've been doing for the last several weeks is we've been kind of, um, you know, rather than exhaustively going through every incident in David's life, we've been kind of painstakingly picking these really significant moments, these pivotal moments in David's life or pivotal people in David's life. And and today we're going to look at another one of those. Today we're looking at a a time in David's life that I think is absolutely, um, it was as meaningful, it was as important, it was as significant and pivotal as any moment in David's life. Um, it, it's uh, the, the final time that he and Saul ever faced one another in this life. Uh, we're going to be looking at a story uh, that I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that as long as David was turning oxygen into carbon dioxide, he probably thought about what we're going to be studying today every single moment that God gave him during this life. It's recorded for us um, in 1 Samuel chapter 26. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, so what I'll do is read uh, verses 7 to 14 and then 22 to 25. It says, That night David and Abishai came to the troops, and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has handed your enemy over to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be blameless? David added, As the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he'll die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head, and they went their way. No one saw them, no one knew, no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. David crossed to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance 
There was a considerable space between them. Then David shouted to the troops and to Abner, son of Ner, aren't you going to answer, Abner? Who are you who calls to the king? Abner asked. And then we'll skip to verse 22. This is David speaking to Saul now. David answered, here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I was not willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. Saul said to him, you are blessed, my son David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went on his way and Saul returned home. This is God's word. What we're looking at today is a, is a story um, that shows us David being presented with a test uh, that we are all going to face countless times throughout our lives, and I am absolutely positive most, if not all of us, are facing uh, this test right now. And um, what this test that David was faced with, that we're all going to be faced with, when it shows up, it always does at least two things. Always, without fail, it will do two things in your life. It will reveal what you really believe, and in so many ways, it will determine who you go on to become. And so what I want to look at today is, first off, what David's test was and why it's something that we're all going to face um, and, and may very well be facing right now. Then I want to look at David's response to it and why his response mattered so much and then lastly, we're going to look at how we can respond the way that David responded. So the first question that I want to get to today is, is, is what was David's test? And to understand that, uh, I want to give you a little bit of context that leads up to the story we're reading today. So up to this point, you're going to hear me say this more than once because it's incredibly significant. Up until this point, David was already anointed king of Israel. Uh, and he was anointed king of Israel while Saul who was rejected by God, was still sitting on the throne of Israel. Now that, as you can imagine, created an awkward situation for all parties involved. And so as we started looking at a couple weeks ago, uh, Saul developed what could, you know, clinically be known as David-aphobia, where he just has this irrational fear and irrational hatred of David uh, for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Uh, and, and so he... he um, you know, it begins with jealousy and, and bitterness and envy, and it very quickly turns to this homicidal rage. And so Saul tries to kill David, which then forces David to flee into the wilderness. And when he's out there, he kind of surrounds himself with a band of, of other men whose lives didn't work out the way that they wanted their lives to work out. And so they've kind of formed this, you know, Robin Hood and his merry men kind of dynamic. They're these nomadic warriors and, um, and tough guys that uh, bounce around from place to place because they really have nowhere to lay their head. And, and Saul has been actively pursuing David, hunting him like a wild animal for several chapters now. And so um, Saul gets some, some intel on the front end of 1 Samuel 26. He gets some intel from the people of this one region that tell him, hey, David's hiding among us. And so Saul hand-selects 3,000 soldiers uh, that he is commissioning to help him find and destroy David and anyone loyal to him. Uh, and, and he's moving toward David. He's in this area, and he sets up camp one night. 
And so everybody's asleep. Saul is asleep in the middle of the camp, which is where a king would sleep for, um, you know, for obvious reasons. It's the safest part of the war camp. You've got to pass through a lot of people in order to get to the king, so he's right in the middle. And, and here we're, we're told that David and uh, one of his right-hand men, a ruthless man, a man who was willing to do whatever David wanted him to do, because he just seems to really enjoy killing, to be perfectly honest with you. His name was Abishai. Uh, They sneak into the camp, partly because of divine intervention. We're told here that God actually put Saul and his camp into a deep sleep. So partly because of their skill, but mostly because of divine intervention, David and Abishai are willing to slip past all of the defenses of this camp. They're standing over top the sleeping body of King Saul, and Saul has his spear stuck in the ground right next to him, which was a common safety measure in that day and age, Uh, because it made your weapon readily available in case of an attack. And so here's David in Abishai standing over top of King Saul with his spear stuck in the ground right next to him. And then we read in verse 8, it says, Then Abishai said to David, Today God has handed your enemy over to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. Those are the words of somebody who is really good at taking life. Uh, That right there is David's test. And you can read that very superficially and, and say, okay, so David's test was whether or not he's going to murder Saul in his sleep. And if that's the only way that you read this, you'll find that it's not terribly relatable to people living in the 21st century because I'm going to go out here on a limb and say that nobody who listens to this is going to find themselves in the middle of a war camp sleeping next to an ancient Near Eastern king who's been trying to murder you for some time. Uh, Unless you've got a really weird thing going on in your life, and hey, no judgment, you probably need to be in church more than the rest of us. Um, But if you zoom out from this story, uh, and you consider what this situation represents for David, I think you'll understand why I say that this is a a situation David was placed in and a test that David was faced with that that you and I uh, can actually relate to quite easily in, in our lives. So again, let me remind you of something I said on the front end. David was already the anointed king of Israel. This was not a hope that he had. This wasn't even necessarily a desire that he had. This is simply a promise that God gave him through his prophet Samuel. He said, you are the anointed king to sit on the throne of Israel. All right, and what we've seen for, I don't know, 12 chapters or so, maybe more than that actually, uh, what we've seen is that King Saul... Uh, instead of accepting that, like so many other people in Israel could, I mean, to anyone else in Israel, it was so obvious that God was so, so powerfully working in the life of David. I mean, even, even Saul's son, Jonathan, who, who stood to lose his kingship because of David's calling on his life, even Jonathan was willing to get out of the way of this, but Saul was unable to do that. And instead, he actually made it his life's mission to stand in the way of God's work in David's life. And, and while I was putting this teaching together, I just decided... I wanted to read through in one sitting all of, of, um, of what's happened since David and Saul started interacting with each other. And I'll just tell you, it's breathtaking what Saul put David through. It is breathtaking. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of quickly, you know, get you up to speed and remind you of this. Go back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is right after David killed Goliath. And, and we, we actually read this a couple weeks ago. There's, a, there's a, just a, a small statement in chapter 18, that we masked over so quickly, it probably didn't even catch her attention, that tells us that Saul wouldn't let David return to his father's house. That's 1 Samuel 18. Now, what that statement seems to indicate is that David, if he had the option, he would have chosen to return to his father's house. That's something that he actually wanted to do. 
Because remember, when, when you look at, at the picture of David in Scripture, nothing about what the Bible tells us about David even hints at the idea that David was born with a desire for greatness. We don't even have any reason to believe that David particularly wanted to be the king of Israel. Everything that he had promised to him, his anointing, his calling, his all of that, that was just sort of thrust on him. I mean, I, from the way I understand it, David really liked the nice little life he had before you know, he started interacting with King Saul. And just a few verses after that, we're told that Saul attempts to murder David with his own spear, the same spear sticking in the ground at this war camp in, in, in 1 Samuel 26. Saul tried to murder David with that spear not once, but twice. I just ask you to pause there for a minute. If you were David in 1 Samuel chapter 18, you're thinking, I didn't ask for any of this. Uh, if I was David... In 1 Samuel 18, those sheep that I used to hang out with all day are looking better and better to me. Because the thing about sheep, the thing about, you know, tending sheep, it's a pretty simple life. And what I mean by that is sheep don't criticize you. Uh, you're not going to wake up one morning, check your inbox, and find that a sheep wrote you a strongly worded email. And sheep are definitely not conspiring together to murder their shepherd, so, so here David is, he's been pulled out of this nice life of, of, you know, hanging out with, I mean, if he's stressed out, you just push a few sheep together, you know, have a little nap on some sheep, kind of, this is a great life of playing the harp, hanging out with sheep, he's been pulled into the palace, King Saul won't let him go, and all of a sudden, this guy's trying to murder him, and so David now is looking over his shoulder, wondering which version of King Saul got out of bed that morning. Think about that life. In, in chapter 19, we're told that Saul ordered Jonathan, that's David's best friend, to murder him. Thankfully, that didn't work out. When that didn't work out, Saul sends his own agents to David's house to murder him while he's sleeping. So now David has to sleep with one eye open. And after that, he just decides this isn't even worth it. He runs off into the wilderness. And Saul, from that moment, begins to, to hunt him, to chase him down like a wild animal. And I did some research this week, and it, it, this is so wild to me. When we read those chapters that cover, you know, the time in David's life when he was on the run from Saul, that could that'd probably take you about 15, 20 minutes to read through in one sitting. I was reading and, and, and uh, doing some research, and what I found, one theologian said that David was on the run for no less than 13 years from King Saul. So what takes us about 20, 25 minutes to read was 13 years of David's life. Now, as, I, as, I, as that kind of came home for me, I was thinking, 13 years ago, I was 21 years old. I still remember driving to Annapolis. Napa. We went to the federal house, me and my twin brother and a bunch of our friends, the night that we turned 21 years old. And I've thought about all the life that I've lived since then. You know, in, in, that, in this 13-year period of time, I, I got into the fire department. I resigned from the fire department to come work here. I got married. I've had four children. The way I see it, I've had a lifetime worth of experiences in just the last 13 years. And so what would it be like to be running for my life from a psychologically unhinged king who wanted to murder me for absolutely no good reason for 13 years? I just say that to say, unless you have an especially horrible life, you do not have an enemy. You've never had an enemy like King Saul was for David. It, Saul made himself a constant source of anxiety and uncertainty and loneliness and fear and depression and every other negative thing you can imagine for David. He essentially stole David's life from him. And all of that while God promised David, anointed David, you're the king of my people. All right, so, so all of that 
Let's get back to our story here. All of that leads us to this moment where David and Abishai are in this war camp one night. Saul is sleeping. He's been put to sleep through divine intervention. He's literally been, this isn't like David just is trying to force this. Saul has been handed over to David by God. And here's Abishai standing with David over the sleeping body of King Saul. You can just picture the scene. He looks at that spear and he says, David, I know you recognize that spear. That's the same one this lunatic's tried to take your life with on more than one occasion. Here's the deal. How about you let me take this and I will put this guy to rest right here. He won't feel anything. He's not going to see it coming. He's not going to scream and call out. We'll get in. We'll get out. This 13-year nightmare of yours will be over and you can have your rightful place as King David. Just say the word. Now you read it that way. And what's clear to me is that this is not just about whether or not David's going to murder Saul. What this, what this situation was in David's life, this is about whether or not David is going to trust God to make good on his promises, or is he going to take matters into his own hands? It, what's, what's happening in 1 Samuel 26, David is not just being presented with an opportunity to take Saul's life in his hands, he's being presented with an opportunity to place his own life in God's hands. That is the, it is the simplest, it is the most fundamental, but it is the most important test the human heart will ever face. And it's a test entirely comprised of one question. It just boils down to this. Do you really trust God? Do you really trust him? This is the same test that you'll find yourself facing when there's been ongoing tension in your marriage And you have to decide, am I going to choose to love and honor my spouse the way God's called me to, or am I going to hurt them the way that they've hurt me? This is the same test you're faced with when you look at your finances, and you're not where you want to be, and things are a lot tighter than you'd like them to be, and you have to decide, am I going to practice the kind of generosity that God has practiced toward me in Christ? Or am I going to use my money for myself and myself alone? It's the same test you're faced with when you're single and you really want to be in a relationship. And you have to decide, am I going to maintain my integrity if doing so causes me to remain single at least for a time? Or am I going to compromise what I know to be right in the hope that if I do, I'll get the, the, the romantic love that, that I so desire? I could go on. The point is this test is going to manifest itself Countless different times in countless different ways throughout our lives. Right? Unlike David, our tests are probably never going to involve a war camp, a king, and a spear. But what our tests absolutely do have in common with David is that we don't get to study for them. They don't show up on the schedule and give us a lot of time to think beforehand how we're going to respond. They just appear. And when they do, these tests will always, without fail, do at least two things in our lives. They will reveal what you really believe and in so many ways, they will determine who you go on to become. That's where David is. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, maybe, just maybe, it's where more than a few of us find ourselves today. So the question is, how did David respond? And we see the answer to that in verses 9 through 11. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be blameless? David added, as the Lord lives... The Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he'll die, 
or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. What David's words there prove is that his decision to spare Saul was not just, you know, the byproduct of his passivity. Uh, it, it, and, it, and it wasn't a self-serving thing. If, if all David said on the front end there was don't destroy him because who can lift his hand against the Lord's anointed and be blameless, you could maybe interpret that as, okay, David just doesn't want this on his conscience. David just doesn't want his reputation to take a hit. But when David goes further than that and he says the words, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come or he'll go into battle and perish. What David is saying there is something that, please follow me here, because this just might be something that God desires some of us to learn to teach our own hearts. What David is saying here with these words, he's saying, I, know, I believe that God knows how this story is supposed to end, so I'm going to trust him to write it. David could have taken that spear in his hand or had Abishai taken that spear in his hand that night, but that would have been David effectively taking the pen in his own hand and deciding for himself how the story of this conflict and his kingship was supposed to go. But in refusing to do that and with his words here, what David is showing is that he knew in his heart of hearts, he chose to believe that God knew better than him about how this story that God was walking him through was supposed to end, and so he trusted God enough to let him write it. If, if you want a, a, a working definition or a great picture of what it actually means to trust God, because we talk about that all the time. What does it mean to really trust God? We talk about trusting God and you just got to trust him and put your trust in God. What does that actually mean? This is a great, this is an amazing picture of what that actually looks like. Trusting God in a negative sense means refusing to believe that you know how your story is supposed to be written. S stated positively, trusting God means you believe that God does know, that he knows how your life is supposed to go, that he knows how the story is supposed to be written, and you trust him enough to actually write it for you rather than take matters into your own hands. And what David's life also shows us is that regardless of what the circumstances are in your and my life, regardless of what your test is and how that's manifesting itself right, right now, one thing that trusting God will always lead to is pain, at least initially, because to trust God is to cut across the grain of your own heart. Whether trusting God means doing something that you are terrified of doing, that, that you would really rather not do, or it means doing something that would be so easy to walk away from, so easy to not do, what trusting God will always lead to, at least on the front end, is, is pain. And what, that's exactly what it led to in David's life. Trusting God, le leaving this man alive, that's the most painful thing that David could have possibly been asked to do because he has absolutely no reason to believe that Saul's not going to live to see another day and pursue him and maybe get the better of him one day. And the, the reason that I admire this decision of David so much is because of how much pressure he had working against him that would have led him to do the opposite of what he did that day. When you consider the external and the internal pressure that would have led David to simply take this man's life, it's amazing that David responded the way that he did. When I say external pressure, remember David's culture was almost nothing like ours. David lived in what's called a shame and honor culture. And in a shame and honor culture, the, the, only, really the only thing that people respected then was strength. 
the most important social commodity or social capital you could have in the eyes of other people was strength. And so when Abishai asked David, let me kill this guy for you, that's not, you notice David's not recoiling in horror. He's not, you know, his breath isn't taken away by, because that's just how things were done back then. That was a necessary thing for David to do. See, but by allowing Abishai to take Saul's life, this is David setting the precedent on the front end of his kingship that if you raise your hand against David, you're going to pay dearly. That was actually an important thing for a king to do. You know, things like compassion and mercy and forgiveness and grace, none of those things were honorable in, in an ancient Near Eastern context. Those, those translated to weakness. You know, for, for all David know, knew, but by, by sparing his life, this just means that when he actually is king and has to lead the very people in that war camp, they're just going to get the idea that they can walk all over David without fear of any kind of retribution. And then surrounding nations might getting that, get that idea in their head. This is an incredibly risky thing to leave this man alive for external reasons, but also for internal reasons. For the 13 years that Saul had stolen David's life from him and all the things that we put him through. But, but David's response, the reason that, that David's response to this situation mattered so much is that in so many ways this determined the kind of king that he was going to be. And, and this is where I, I'm, I'm really hoping that this teaching hits home for somebody today. Let me just ask you to consider something. David could have allowed his anger to get the better of him right, right here in this valley. We explained it earlier. He had a lot of good reasons for that. David could have allowed bitterness to put its hands on the wheel of his life. He could have chosen to dwell on all of the things that Saul had done for him and allow that to translate to a self-pity that kind of consumed him and led him to ending Saul's life that day. But if that's what David would have done, he would have become exactly like the man that he pinned to the ground. You, you see that. That's, just, that's the story of Saul. Saul was a man who was constantly allowing his anger and his bitterness and his rage and his envy and his jealousy and his, all of that kind of stuff to drive his decision-making processes instead of actually putting his life in the hands of God. So what David did during his, this is his final meeting with Saul, what David did that evening by trusting God enough to spare Saul was the most important thing that David could have possibly done, which was ensure that he'd never become like Saul. That's why his response to this test mattered. It's why our responses to our tests in our lives matter. C.S. Lewis put it this way. This quote is so sobering to me. He said, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature either into a creature that's in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that's in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it's joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. And he, and he concludes by saying this, each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Now, all, all Lewis is saying here is something that I think we all intuitively understand. He's saying that we all move through life making choices. But what we all eventually come to realize, it's our choices that made us. And to me, that is the story of David and Saul. 
Yeah, I've mentioned before that, that what this passage represents is the final meeting between the two men in this life. And one of the main themes of this passage, one of the main reasons it's preserved in Scripture, one of the main purposes that's meant to convey, it wants to show us how utterly and entirely different these two men who seemingly had really similar beginnings had become by the time their paths had reached their logical conclusion. You go back to the beginning of Saul's reign and what he showed right from the beginning that you gave him power and authority and influence and all the things that magnifies who a person really is, Saul proved right from the beginning that he was unwilling to trust God with his life, period. Whether, you know, whether it was waiting on God or obeying God or whatever it was, Saul refused to wait on God when waiting on God was difficult. He refused to obey God when obedience to God was costly. And David from the get-go has been exactly the opposite. When trusting God meant having the courage to stand before a giant, David was good with that. In in, in the opposite side of that coin, when trusting God meant showing the restraint to spare the life of a king that had tried to take your life so many times, David was good with that too. And when you look at the life of David as preserved in Scripture up to this point, what you're looking at, it, it just shows us that David over and over again had proven that he was a man who was willing to let God sit on the throne of his heart, and that's what, ready to get, that's what got him ready to sit on the throne of God's people. And, and even in this story, by the end of, of their two paths and the logical destinations that they arrived at, that was even clear to Saul, despite how distorted his view of reality was. Because after what we've looked at today, Saul, pardon me, David and Abishai grabbed Saul's spear and they climbed a nearby mountain and they called down to him at a safe distance. And there we read really the final exchange between the two on this side of eternity. It's in verses 22 through 25. Let me read it to you. It says, David answered, here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. Verse 25, this is so significant, even though I'm convinced Saul had no idea what he was really saying here. Verse 25, Saul said to him, you are blessed, my son David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went on his way and Saul returned home. Final words ever exchanged between the two of them. But when you hear Saul, what he does here is he pronounces a blessing over David. It's it's what he means when he says, you are blessed, my son David. And when he goes even further than that and he says, you will certainly do great things and will also prevail, you can almost hear Saul saying, David, you've finally proven once and for all that you're the man I never could become. Because Saul knew Saul knew over that 13 years of chasing down David like he was a wild animal, Saul knew that if they had traded places that night, David would have been dead in the ground. And here, when David had power, when David had authority, when David was in a position of, of, of strength, he, he used that to spare Saul, something that Saul could have never done. He, he left his life in the hands of God rather than taking his own life in his hands. This is Saul just literally and figuratively looking up to David and saying, David, you've become the man I never could become. You're the man that Israel needs to sit on the throne. But, but for you and I studying this passage thousands of years later, what we have to understand, this is so important, is that David did not become that man in that war camp that night. David had been becoming that man all throughout his life 
Every time he made the difficult decision to trust God rather than take matters into his own hands. What I'm trying to say is that the person that David was in the palace was determined by the person he chose to be in the pasture. And that's exactly how it works in your and my life. I don't know if it's because of movies or, or whatever it is, but, but I catch myself thinking this. I think this is just a common human thought process. I think we, we all have this idea that our character or our integrity or our legacy or whatever it is is going to be determined in how we respond in this one big moment, you know, like the last at bat in the World Series with a full count kind of thing. And it's just not how it works. Who we already are is revealed in those times, but it's determined by who we chose to be time and time again, a million different decisions that probably no one other than us and God is ever going to see. And so the the question that this story has been kind of haunting me with, if I'm honest with you, is is the question that that I just want to leave you with. I've had to deal with this all week, so now you have to deal with it. Now we're all in this together. The question that I have to ask, that this passage forces us to ask, and I'll make it personal for you, is very simply, what kind of person are you becoming? Man, that's heavy. But what kind of person are you becoming? What kind of trajectory are your choices setting for your life? That's why why the paths of these two men were so detailed for us in Scripture, to get us to, to examine their lives and then get their lives to examine us. Because every single one of us, we're moving down the path of Saul or we're moving down the path of David. There is no in-between. Now, I I think if we sit there long enough, what any any one of us with any amount of self-awareness is going to have to arrive at is the reality that we're really not that good at trusting God. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, this lie has passed into every single human heart that says that we would be happier if we, rather than God, were free to choose how our lives should go that we have a better idea of how our stories are supposed to be written, that we should be free to run our own lives. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, that lie has been poisoning us and it's been ruining our lives. And so the question is, how can we pass our tests the way that David passed his here? And to answer that question, I want to show you something I found this week. I... um. If you know me, uh, I'm not shy about this. I have not been sleeping lately. And by lately, I mean like a couple years or something. <clears throat> I have a, uh, I have a um, two-and-a-half-year-old and, and, a, and a daughter who's going to be one in uh, just a few days, actually. And, um, and neither of them are sleeping real well. And, uh, and so, you know, before, um, how do I phrase this? When my schedule was mine to choose, <laughs> uh, I, I used to get up at five in the morning, and that's the kind of, that's my wheelhouse. I'd get up at five in the morning, and I'd spend all the time that I wanted to with God. It was great. And that's really hard to do when you're up like six, seven times throughout the night. But anyway, uh, last Sunday night, uh, God gave me a, a great night rest. And so I was able to get up early on Monday morning, and um, I, I use this app called Read Scripture to kind of guide my devotions. I end every time with God in a psalm. And on Monday, I found myself in Psalm 54, purely by coincidence, said Ryan, inviting you to lean in. <laughs> and this is what the introduction, Psalm 54 is rare because it tells us exactly where David was when he wrote it. Not every psalm is like that. This is the introduction of Psalm 54. It says, when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding among us? 
Now, let me read you the beginning of 1 Samuel 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David's hiding on the hill. So the point is, Psalm 54 is the psalm that David wrote exactly during the events that we're talking about today. It literally gives us an insight into David's relationship with God at the exact moment that he was faced with this test. And I just happened to read that this week. Call that a coincidence if you want to. I guess you have more faith than I do. Um, So what this psalm is, is, is it's a guide to understanding not only how David could pass this test in his life, but how you and I can pass tests just like it in our own. It's a short psalm, so I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. It's only seven verses. It says, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. God, hear my prayer. Listen to the words of my mouth. For strangers rise up against me and violent men seek my life. They have no regard for God. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. He will repay my adversaries for their evil. Because of your faithfulness, annihilate them. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Yahweh, because it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked down on my enemies. Now, there's a lot of things going on in this psalm, but all I want to focus on is the thing that immediately caught my eye on Monday morning. It's just, it's just the first verse. Verse 1 says, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. What that is, that's David understanding that he did not have the strength to pass the test before him by himself. And what he is calling out for here, this is remarkable that David even thought to call out for this because there's no reason for David to believe that anything like this even existed. David lived during the time of the Old Testament sacrificial law where you basically had to atone for your own sins by making a sacrifice to God. But what David is asking for here is a salvation that depended on God and a vindication that depended on God. He's asking for a salvation and a vindication that came from outside of him. And of course, what this prayer points forward to and finds its fulfillment in is Jesus Christ who came to provide us with exactly that. What Jesus Christ came to provide for you and I is something that no other founder of any other major belief system even dared offer us, and that is a salvation that depends on his name, his reputation, his track record rather than our own, and a vindication accomplished and achieved for us by his might. And when he went to the cross, he accomplished that by taking our sin and our place before a holy God. So listen, we're almost done. We're going to start winding down. I just really want you to consider this this final part here because basically I've wasted your time if I don't communicate this next part. The hardest part, when, when we're in a position like David was here, the hardest part of trusting God is that you don't know how the outcome It's going to work itself out. That's why it's trusting God. David had no idea what Saul is going to do if I let him live to see another day. He had 13 years that told him it's not going to be anything good. But that's what makes trusting God so difficult. And maybe some of us find ourselves in a position like that right now where you want to trust God, but it's so difficult to trust God because you can't see the outcome. When we find ourselves thinking that way, theologically, the answer to our situation is not complicated. The answer is, we don't need to see the outcome. We need to see Jesus. Now, here's what I mean there. Here's what I mean. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Simon Sinek. 
He's a famous author and speaker. He's written a number of books, Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last. I think his recent book is, is The Infinite Game. Simon Sinek spends a lot of time talking about the cultures of organizations and how to create a healthy culture. And one thing that he, he draws a lot of inspiration from is the military. And he talks about how, how it's almost commonplace for servicemen and service women to lay their lives down, literally to surrender their lives for their fellow servicemen and servicewomen, and it's so inspiring, and it, it requires so much bravery and so many things that are antithetical to the human heart. And they do this often for people that they don't even have a personal relationship with. And if you ask them why they do this, their answer is almost all, always the same. What you'll hear is, because I know that they would do the same for me. What I want to offer you as we close today is that as a follower of Jesus, you have something so much greater than that. Because when you and I find ourselves faced with a test like the one David was faced with here, where we are being called, we are being challenged by God to do the thing that is most antithetical to our human heart, which is to lay our lives down for him, to surrender our will to him, to die to ourselves, we can do that not because Jesus would do the same thing for us, but because he already has. And when you see what Scripture says, that God, God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for us all, and you see Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane under a weight, under a pressure, under an agony that caused his sweat to become like drops of blood, and you hear him praying on your behalf, and he calls out to the Father, and he says, Father, if there is any other way for me to avoid this horrible cup that I've come here to drink, if there's any way for me to get out from under this, then let that happen, God, but if not, if this is the only way to bring them home, to bring you and I home, if that's the only way for us to be forgiven and reunited with God, then not my will but yours be done. When you see Jesus surrendering his life like that for you, your heart gains the ability to surrender your life for him. During the hardest time of his life, when Job had lost everything a human can lose except his own physical life, he found strength because he reminded himself, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. I'm telling you, you and I know better than Job. We know that our Redeemer died. And when we see that, and when that becomes real to us, we grow in the ability to die to ourselves, to lay our lives down, to surrender to him the way that he surrendered himself for us. Now, let me call the worship team up, and I just want to close with this. The final thing this this story in David's life reminds us of in 1 Samuel 26 is that what God decides to walk us through is not nearly as important as how we choose to walk through it. What God decides to walk us through is not nearly as important as how we decide to walk through it. And I'd ask you, could you just consider where you might be five or 10 or 20 years from now, or if not, just at the end of your life, because what I think we all have in common is that every single one of us, when we stand before God, we want to be able to look at him and say, Father, I trusted you. Even when it was hard, even when I didn't understand what you were doing, even when I couldn't even imagine a way that it was going to work out, everybody said it was crazy, and I started to wonder myself, even then, Father, I trusted you. Even then, I trusted you. And if you want to grow in that kind of trust, that kind of leave your life in his hands, trust him to write your story kind of trust, see Jesus Christ putting his life in the hands of the Father for you. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm convinced that every one of us is going to find ourselves in the middle of a test like David did. 
in the middle of that war camp where we have to decide, am I going to take matters into my own hands or am I going to place my life in yours? And I know that there has never been a person, alive or dead, that regrets choosing to place their life in your hands. As hard as it is, as painful as it is, as counterintuitive as it is to our broken hearts, Father, through the power of your gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus, would you help us to see his sacrifice for us so that we could do what it is you're calling us to do, to trust you and to find the greatest truth in the universe in our own lives that you really can be trusted. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.